Our scripture passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, and going through till the end. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning. Bless us through the power of the Spirit to see Christ as the head over all things more clearly. Yes, this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of the big stories of the last couple weeks has been the devastation of the Texas electric grid. Uh, the a cold front, of course, that we, we experienced as well in our own little way um, the last couple of weeks as snow, snow, and more snow was on the horizon. There might have been a Waxhaw pastor that created a, a, even a newsroom for the weather. Uh, I thought it was a good investment of time and resources at the moment. Now as snow melts away, maybe it wasn't. Um, but the grid was overwhelmed. People were freezing, and, and uh, articles now are coming out that it might take as long as uh, three months in order to kind of quantify the full breadth of the humanitarian crisis, all which stemmed from a cold front and power and energy not being there in order to withstand that cold front. And it's quite remarkable because... Uh, that that little story, while you might be saying, what does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23? Um, I think we're actually going to discover, as we get, go through this text, that Texas as an illustration of, of people out in the cold because they cannot get the power or energy that they're usually accustomed to is actually quite a bit of the theme of how Paul closes this second run-on sentence, this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. So, I think, I think you're going to discover that. But even before I get into the text, let me hit a little closer to home than Texas. 98% of Protestant churches in America, according to a poll released this week by Lifeway Research, say their attendance is down from a year ago today. 98% of Protestant churches... More than 31% say that their attendance is less than half it was a year ago. Another roughly 40% say it's about half to about 70% of what it was a year ago. And the final remainder is somewhere in that three-fourths. And after meditating upon this text, I have to think that the Apostle Paul would have seen such numbers in our nation as a humanitarian crisis developing within the church. A Texas-like cold front of a situation. 
I really do. I, yet also, I believe that the Apostle Paul would look at those numbers and say, that problem could easily be solved if you begin to understand what he's going to get into in our passage this morning. The Apostle Paul begins in verse 19 with a prayer-filled question. And what that question really boils down to is this. On a day-to-day basis, in the decisions we make, in the patterns of life we follow, where does seeking after the power of God rank in importance? On most days, I would say the average individual doesn't tend to place too much emphasis in God's power. I I think often of like the... um, fire extinguisher and the emergency container where in, in case of emergency break open glass, we, we, we expend our strength and occasionally we might break open the glass and reach for the fire extinguisher. Paul here is going to try to get us believers to wake up and to see something entirely more dramatic than some emergency fire hydrant on the wall when we consider the power of God. I'm sure most of you have uh, heard Dr. J. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer's famous quote. He was really, in many ways, the lead scientist for the development of the nuclear bomb. And as he witnessed the explosion of that bomb, he uh, quoted from the pagan um, Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad oh, whatever. Anyways, it's gobbledygook. But... Um, And as he watched the explosion, he said, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Well, I actually think Paul in this opening question is almost saying the exact opposite of Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer. I think he's actually saying, Christian, you have become the creator's. And He has life-giving power over you and over the world. To hammer home my point a little more clearly, because maybe you don't think it's valid to compare the first explosion of a nuclear bomb to the power that Paul is talking about. Do you know what the Greek word used by Paul here is for power? It's the word dynamos. Or dynamis, actually. Which sounds like which English word? Dynamite. It should. Our word for dynamite comes from this Greek term. It's an explosively powerful force that God offers to us. Fellow Christians, we have access to an unlimited, explosive amount of power if Jesus is our Lord. But having exposure to power is not enough. The Colorado River wasn't a a powerful river. It had explosive power. It carved out the Grand Canyon. And yet, not until the Hoover Dam was put up could that force power cities. Power also needs to be converted into energy. And this prayerful question of Paul in verse 19, it counts for that as well. You see, there's another word underlined in the Greek here. The word for working in this verse is the Greek word energeion. Which, of course, the English word what comes from? Energy. Energy. 
So according to the Apostle Paul, for the believing Christian, God is for you. And, and, and what he is for you is in one sense, and this isn't the full description of God, but he is an immeasurable, explosive power who gives energy and works to those who believe so that they might work out according to his great might. A Pew report recently showed that one-fourth of American Christians are now reporting that their faith was, is stronger today than it was a year ago. But even to get more specific... Bible-believing evangelicals were the highest of all the groups. 50% of us. 50% of us look at the circumstances of the last year and say, God has been good. God has been remarkable. My faith is stronger in God today than it was a year ago. And in a year where so much of the news and so much of the reporting has been discouragement after discouragement. I found that so exciting to read this week. Half of evangelicals are saying they love God more today than they did a year ago. Now may I ask you something a little more personal? Which half are you a part of? Is your faith stronger than it was a year ago? If so, why is it so? And if, you, and if not, why is it not? Do you think that it's a coincidence that Bible-believing evangelicals are the most satisfied Christians in America? Or maybe you do. Maybe, you're just, maybe you came here the skeptic, the unbeliever. And you're just saying, well, that's just a bunch of Jesus freaks. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, I don't get the impression that the Apostle Paul would think that's a coincidence. People who strive to be conformed by the Word of God, being empowered by the Word of God, even in trial and difficulty. And the first half of verse 20, Paul basically tells us that this untapped, explosive power and energy that we have access to is the same kind of mighty power that brought about the resurrection itself. It gives life to the dead. We have the power of Easter morning in us. You have the power of Easter morning in you. What a wonderful reality to know. I, I thought of our ailing and sick within our community. Those who are really struggling with those medical diagnoses that you don't want to get. I hope they hear that message. The power of life-giving resurrection is already within you, Christian. So have courage and take heart. Well, for most of us, Maybe we aren't facing a medical hardship today. Still many of us, I know, are allowing ourselves to be cut off from the power of God in this moment. And I have to ask why. And the answer why is because we lack the courage to more boldly seek it. We'd rather live in the spiritual form of Texas a couple weeks ago. In the lonely, frigid cold. Rather than receiving the energy, energizing power. From heaven. We forget the profound lesson the resurrection gives us. Our Savior was a life was lifeless and dead in the grave. And not just like in the movies dead. You know, in the movies dead where the character is like this for about a minute and then a couple chest compressions later, 
And uh, maybe if they were in water, they spit up a little bit of water. All of a sudden, they're back again. And if it's a, you know, an action-packed movie, they're back shooting the bad guys three seconds later. Jesus was dead. A Jewish carpenter from Nazareth was dead. Not just a little dead. He was dead dead. He was killed by the most awful means devised by humanity. And he was laid in a tomb to rot. He was dead. The body had no life. He was left to decay. Left to become a forgotten Jewish carpenter. Not even a footnote to history. And yet that lifeless Jewish carpenter has become more pow- the most powerful name and authority in human history through that resurrecting power of Easter morning. That power of God could take that pierced backwater carpenter's lifeless body and make it the name above all names. And we as believers don't j- just have more than just access to that power. If we have been born again, as some of you know, we have come to life through that power, from our spiritual bankruptcy before God. When I was 19 years old, when the Lord saved me, I was cleverly wicked. I was a clever, wicked type, which meant my parents had no idea I was clever, wicked. They had no idea the awful kinds of things I was, found myself involved in, and I was dead spiritually. And yet that power of God came upon me, And the power of Easter began working within me and through me and awakened my soul. And no longer was it I who lived, but Christ who lived in me. And while I've had a great many moments and days since where I'm like the grumpy father who turns down the the thermostat in order to make the house more cold so it might go, my faith might grow a little colder in that moment because I want something else, Christ's power is enduring. And it's overwhelming and it's explosive. And it draws his lost sheep and brings them back to him. Because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then we move on to the second half of verse 20. And we make a quick point about these verses we're covering today. For the women who participate in the Hebrew study, these verses really are an abbreviated version of the first few statements, really first chapter and and chapter two of of Hebrews. This second run-on sentence of Ephesians chapter one shares a lot in common with Hebrews. And actually, even more than that, it shares a lot in common with how the Gospels end. And it also shares a lot in common with what Daniel saw when he beheld the throne of heaven in Daniel chapter seven. Or maybe a little bit of what Isaiah saw, saw, and you women studied this week in Isaiah chapter 6. And also a little bit of what David wrote about in Psalm 110, which is also the same psalm that Jesus quoted in his final dialogue and, and debate, really, with the Pharisees before his, the, the ending of his mortal life. Paul ends his prayer wanting you to understand Jesus reigns with full authority in every exaltation in heaven today. You don't need to be Isaiah or Daniel or David or Paul or writer of the Gospels in order to have a remarkable life revitalized through the power of God. 
Those explosive stories of courage that we read in Scripture, that energy by which they had in order to show the good news and glory of God before others and with others, that's available to us right now. Right now as believers, we have access. He is sitting in the place of honor. And as verse 21 begins to unfold for us, His rule is above all other rule and authority. When it comes to the Christian and politics, we forget the lessons of history. We forget even the simple historic realities of this letter. When Paul writes this letter to Christians in Ephesus, it would have been incredibly unlikely that Ephesus had more people who called themselves Christian than are in this general region of Harleysville today who would call themselves Christian. Paul's writing to a small enclave of people living in the most renowned empire of human history. Paul writes to this massively minuscule Christian regional church while imprisoned by Caesar. And he remarkably is calling his shot to Ephesus. Jesus is in charge of it all, he says. Every last bit of it. The Apostle Paul has made clear throughout chapter 1, there's not a molecule in all of creation that God doesn't say, that's not mine. He's over, he has authority over it all. God looks over everything created and ultimately says it's His. And what I don't want you to do right now is ultimately run to this excuse. Oh, that's easy for him to say he's an apostle. No. Paul knew chaos that would put us to shame in his lifetime. Paul is staring and writing this in a prison cell, in a fledging faith. Towards the end of his life, he's often rewriting churches going, you're forgetting the gospel. He's writing about a Jewish carpenter most people don't know, never heard the name of. And he's saying, at the end of all history, this is the name above all other names. And then in the age to come, it's still going to be the name above every name. And that was remarkable to say 2,000 years ago. He would have been considered someone right for the loony bin to say that 2,000 years ago. But he could say it because he's already had so many moments of crisis in his life that he's already discovered time and time again how God is a life giver. That God reaches into dead, lifeless, empty vessels And fills them up with his power and energy. He already has beheld the Jesus who sits enthroned on high. And so if your faith is freezing right now. And you're like 75% of Christians who said they've had no change with God. Or their faith has grown colder in this past year. It's time to turn up the thermostat. It's time to be more engaged with God. If you're standing in snow barefoot without a jacket on. And complaining about how cold it is. You only have yourself to blame, right, Judy? <laughs> I often come to the office last two days barefoot. Um, anyways, you didn't want to know that, I know. In a similar way, if you're a Christian not happy with your faith life, it's time to listen to the Apostle Paul and what he's trying to tell you as he ends Ephesians chapter 1. Because it's our Lord's name that will be the name above all other names in this age and the age to come. Paul is giving this church of Ephesus the historical spoiler of all time. In a world where we want 
more friends and views and likes on social media accounts. I just read a disturbing fact. I hope it's not true. But apparently the average human more, has more of a response of satisfaction and receiving a like on Facebook than a rat does getting food. That's not healthy for society. I hope that's wrong, but I digress. In a world where so many are clawing for things like power, where billions of dollars are regularly spent on presidential elections and alike to decide who might run a branch of government for four years, in a human history with names like Julius Caesar and Genghis Khan and Mohammed, George Washington and others, Paul says here, here's the spoiler of all spoilers, folks. Jesus is the most important name at the end of all things and in the world to come. And as I said before, that statement would have sounded absolutely loony. It's one of those moments where 2,000 years of historical hindsight don't serve us well. And when we think that and we appreciate that, that a community smaller than the Christian community of Harleysville could so change the world, maybe we have and start to develop the courage to wonder, what might this same God be able to accomplish by using me? And even more than that, when we come to the final few verses of chapter 1. Because in this, these final verses, we have really one of the most interesting illustrations of a church community in all Scripture. First, we have Jesus' feet described. How everything is, is under Jesus' feet. Paul is quoting Psalm 8 there, verse 6. It has to do a little bit with the Lord's authority. But also, it's more than that. If I were to say the enemy is underfoot... It means you're ultimately guarded against them. The ultimate victory has been decided. Now that doesn't mean that battles still aren't raging. Even after World War II, occasionally they would stumble upon a soldier who didn't get the memo. The war was over. A lot of, uh, for instance, Japanese soldiers on small islands. And they'd be caught years and years and years afterwards, still fighting, even though the war is lost. But still, the point remains that when it comes to the war... The mortal blow has fallen upon Satan, his minions, and even the greater power of death itself. Jesus is our guardian who proves this case. And so, in one sense, part of the reference about being underfoot is a little bit a reference to that. But also, beyond the guardian idea, there are other places in Scripture, such as Joshua chapter 10, verse 24, Isaiah 49, verse 23, Isaiah 60, verse 13, trying to quote Isaiah because I know you women are in it, where there's another idea of being underfoot in the ancient world, which can be, no, sorry, those quotes were towards the previous point. The other idea of being underfoot in the ancient world can be found in Deuteronomy 11, 24, Joshua 1, 3, and Psalm 122, verse 2. And that idea of being underfoot is how you have an active ownership of the land. You're actively present on the land. You have a presence in the land. And I think Jesus is also referencing that. You know, there's, there's some Christians that I think so, sometimes so look forward to Christ's kingdom to come that they forget that from heaven He rules today. And regardless of what lies in store for America or for this world, remember, everything is playing out into Jesus' hands. As Paul states in this passage, Jesus is the head of his body, the church today. People and their designs 
are playing into the sovereign's hands. He has not abandoned his position. Notice also, no one else is the head in these verses. And Jesus is the head over all things. He's the only head. I recently just read of a cardinal uh, who was relieved from his post in the Vatican. He was uh, a conservative cardinal. And he, he, he didn't like a lot of what Pope Francis was saying. He kept pushing back, kept pushing back. And so Pope Francis has basically said, you can retire. And the cardinal's response, which is kind of, if you know Roman Catholicism, this is, a, this is quite a response, said, come to realize that the only rock is Jesus Christ. Which I, which I read now, I'm like, Amen. Amen, brother. <laughs> and John of Ephesians chapter 1, he'd say, I mean, Paul of Ephesians chapter 1 would say, Amen. He's the only head. He's the only rock. Jesus is the head. Everybody else, we're body parts. And we're all body parts with different functions. We have different strengths, different weaknesses. If you're not a body part, the only other option is to be detached from the body. We're all body parts, and body parts, to function rightly, have to listen to the head. Because the head is where the instructions come from. Christianity is not like politics. In politics, we vote for somebody, and we send them to go do a job on our behalf. Christian community is not supposed to be that way. When it comes to the body of Christ, you're called to have a function in that body. And if you don't know what the function is, your function is in the body, the first question you should ask yourself is, how have you been communicating with the head of the body, our Lord Jesus Christ? Because the head is always willing to give instructions. Through His Word, through the power of His Spirit, through the gathering together and worship. He's always willing to meet you in such moments and communicate to you a little bit more about what he desires from you. But maybe you're not hearing much from him because you're really not seeking after him. We sever the connection with the head. And so if we do that, we won't know what he wants from us. So what part of the body are you? You know, too many people want to be an appendix in the Christian faith. Bruce likes to call them pew potatoes. I think that's a good expression too. We have too many people who are trying to serve the role of an appendix. The body really doesn't need an appendix. We're all called to serve an active part in ministry. Not just the pastoral staff and the consistory. They can't replace your role being a member in this body. And even more than that, you're not just a part of Christ's body, you're an integrated part of the whole. So you have to be mindful of how you're either harming or blessing that whole. You know, uh, Bruce and I, I think we were downstairs eating food uh, and talking and, and praying and all that stuff. Um, the job of a pastor. But, and all of a sudden I reached for something. And I reached kind of in a weird way. And all of a sudden it happened. My, my arm just shot with a cramp. I, I shot up. And, and Bruce, of course, because he's a sympathetic soul, just starts laughing. <laughs> He just starts cracking up because we have a brotherly love for one another and, and he just starts cracking up. But what happened? There was a cramp in my arm and all of a sudden it shot through the entire body. We want to be careful with how we act in the body because it affects other parts. One ailing section in the body can, if not careful, cause real damage. Even an appendix is capable of bringing an entire body into death. 
So we need to be mindful as Christians of how we conduct ourselves. How we go apart, uh, how we go about the idea of being a part of the larger body. Also, we want to remember if someone is, say, metaphorically a nose for this body, you shouldn't expect them to be a hand. The bigger question is, are all the body parts seeking the explosive power of God so that they might have the energy to work and to sacrifice for God? as they have been so called by their Lord, who is enthroned in heaven above. Members of old Goshenhoppen, we need to stop wanting to be appendixes and start having a clear role within the church. And I speak for myself here just as much as anyone else, because trust me, I have mornings where I just want to be an appendix all day. And even better, yeah, maybe you're not an appendix. Maybe you're someone actively at work Uh, We are, as Christians, still called to come alongside one another, invest in fellow members and people of the church, and help them figure out what part of the body they might be. You know, I didn't want to be a pastor. Even when I started seminary, I sat my wife down and I said, I know I'm going to seminary now. I know you and a bunch of other people have been telling me I should do this for like eight years. But I just want you to know one thing at the start. The one job I'll never be is a pastor. God has a sense of humor. And yet, even though I thought it was crazy, the more I listened to God's still small voice, that incredible power, I kept hearing things like, in a spiritual sense, of course, Tim telling me his own way, this is your part in the body. And so now, instead of appendix, I used to be an appendix, I'm a kneecap or something. You know, it's, it's fun being a kneecap. I like being a kneecap. He's done some unbelievable things through me as a kneecap. But the point is, we come to the Lord who is the head of the church. And we help others come to the Lord in Christ who is the head of the church and discover what that lifeless body that first Easter morning discovered. That the power of God is amazing and can bring dead things to life. How might our Lord and Savior have been trying to speak? How has He been trying to speak the power of life to you in the last year? Let's just say. What is He calling out for you to do, or or maybe patterns to change in how you've been at work in this world? Without listening to the head, the body dies. Let me repeat that warning without listening to the head, the body dies. So let us be found always listening to the name above all names that is perfect in both his works and his power. Let us strive with due diligence to find his role for us, the part we have to play in this greater collective, this greater whole called his body. Let our Lord's presence fill the sanctuary and this community. Amen? Let us pray. Good and gracious Father, What a body you have given us to be a part of. Help us to hear you. Help us to find our function. Help us to work better. Help us to receive the life-giving power that you have for us. Help us to be able to say next year, if we live so long, that we see the life-giving power of Jesus continue to uphold us and strengthen our love for you. We thank you that as we Look in a world that often competes for power and and prestige and Facebook likes and alike. 
we already find the full satisfaction in Jesus Christ, the name above all names. Amen. Now-